Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you with fingers crossed that we're past the smoky wildfire season in the mountains of Utah. Today's guest is author and podcaster Mallory O'Mara. Mallory wrote the best-selling nonfiction book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Her upcoming Girly Drinks, a feminist history of women and alcohol, is out just a week from the broadcast of this episode. Mallory also co-hosts the literary podcast Reading Glasses. Mallory and I talk about how authors are bound to social media and the frustration that brings, how her career took a left turn into nonfiction, and the way COVID disrupted the fragile social lives of creative professionals. Enjoy my conversation with Mallory O'Mara. And he said trying to publicize it was the most stressful thing. When the pandemic started, uh, I was on my paperback tour for Lady from the Black Lagoon, and that all got canceled. And then when I started working on Curly Drinks and we started um, planning what we were going to do, I started really panicking about a lot of things. And I realized that my only my only reference point for how to put a book out was pre-pandemic. And I finally sat down with my publicist and my marketing um, lady, and I was just like, Please tell me how things are different now because I'm panicking really, really hard about how like what things aren't certain things aren't happening. Certain things are happening later. I, like I just before I walk into the sea, please let me know what's happening because they, everything is so different from like cover reveals to um, and, like anything, any anything publicity you're putting a book out is just so different now. And um, I was talking to my uh, my friend uh, Sarah Gailey, who's also an author, and we were both like did we go on the last book tours that authors will ever have in 20? Cause we both debuted in 2019 and, or they debuted their novel. They had novellas beforehand. Um, but I was like, are we, is, is, did we like live in the last great era of like author events? Are they never going to come back? Cause it just, it feels like it's not right. And I, I think they will, but I think it's going to be a weird time until then. Yeah. It's just so strange. Right. Cause it could be, it could be next year and it could be, five years from now who the crap knows yeah and i mean i on one hand I, being an author in this time especially when you like want to do events and do things you're t- constantly caught between wow i really want to do this because i want to sell books so i can eat um but on the other hand you're like i also don't want to die and i don't want to put people that i care about in uh, in danger and it's such a strange push and pull of like oh god i really want to do this event or i hope this event doesn't get canceled but like ooh, i also like you know don't want to be responsible for the deaths of anybody. It's it's everything is so heavy and it's so strange and it's so we're missing a lot of the normal markers that we would get. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, you do your cover reveal and you do this and you do that. And then you do a signing and on your date and you do a launch party and whatever. And so many of those like markers that we're used to having um, that say, Oh, Hey, you're, you're successful. You're doing well. You're doing all the things you're supposed to do. Aren't there or just virtual, which is also 
all virtual events are real, but you know what I mean? They just feel different. They do. They totally feel different. And it's that like, you you know, we can chat online on, you know, Zoom or whatever as much as we want. But at the end of the day, like going and having a drink with somebody uh, and actually like physically seeing them, it's like, it's, it's so much different. It's so different. It really, really is. You know, even when you're kind of feeling safer about things, you still have to think about, okay, I'm fine with wearing a mask when I go out. Do I want to do a book event with a mask on for three hours? That kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It's so weird. And it's funny because I felt like authors both had an easier time during the pandemic and a harder time. I remember when it all started. I mean, I've been working from home for like eight years now. And, you know, this is, it was like that Watchmen quote, like, you know, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. Like, I know how to do this. Actually, me and my best friend, Lauren Panapinto, uh, actually gave a, um, I gave a talk on Crowdcast about how to work from home. I think it was in March when we were all like, oh, we're going to be doing this for a month. Uh, and because I've been doing it for so long. Um, so authors, you know, we're all, a lot of us are introverts and we're weird and we're like happy to be alone and stay home for months and months on end. But on the other hand, we need those spaces like we were talking about before we started recording of like going to a con and seeing all your friends in conveniently placed in one bar so you can talk about them and talk about work stuff and industry stuff. And then you go home and you're like, ah, I am recharged and I can go forward and, and you know, sit in my office for the next five months. We don't get that, you know. So now we just have been alone for, for almost two years now. And it's... Uh, it's just such a weird time to be an author. Yeah, because on the surface, it feels like like the perfect job. Because, oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, I don't have to leave my house. Yeah. But but you get, I, I feel like the burnout happens way quicker. Oh, absolutely. Because you don't get that rejuvenation of, you know, seeing friends or, or even just going to get to write at Starbucks, you know, like yeah. getting out of the house. Oh, for sure. Like it just, you know, when you when you're an author who works from home, like I would actually look forward to that day every week where I would like go to get groceries and like go to the library and I'm like, ah, seeing my species. Hooray. You're all still great. And then like go back inside. We don't get that. And it's very, I, I mean, the thing that I think was hardest, especially last year and will soon be harder again is, uh, and I know that you probably have dealt with this because the nature of your books is that it's hard to research when you can't go to the library. It is so many people were like, oh, oh my gosh, your new book. It's so great. You, you have all this time to work on it. I'm like, I can't go to the library. I'm a nonfiction writer. That's the cutting off my <laughs> lifeblood. There were a few months from like March to May. I think it was, yeah, I think it was June when the Los Angeles Public Library finally started doing um, pickups where I thought I'm going to have to delay my book because I can't. I can't do anything. I can't go on research trips. I can't go to the library. Like I can't, there's only so much I can do with online research, especially if like there's a book that I need that has, doesn't have a, a digital scan or something. I, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just. I guess I didn't run into too much of that. Cause I'm not, I'm not much of a researcher cause it's all secondary world stuff. But I, but like with Epic fantasy, like you're writing like scenes that are 5,000 words long, these big blocks of, of text. And so you're, but like I found myself over the last year and a half rewriting way more than I ever have in my life. Oh yeah. Just not being happy with what I'm putting on the page. And so, you know, you finish, I'd finish 30,000 words and then look back at it and be like, Oh, this is all shit. I'm throwing it all out. Oh yeah. I, you know, this is garbage. I feel like I've lost my diction. Um, that's something that I've noticed. And 
I mean, you know, I, I feel extra bad for all the people who are COVID long haulers and people who have had a really hard, I read a, um, an essay by one of my favorite uh, writers, Pat- Patricia Lockwood, who is a COVID long hauler. And she's, she got it right at the start and she detailed like how she was like, I feel I felt like I was going insane. Um, but just the stress and all the things we've been through for the past year, like I can't think of the word for anything. I feel like a grandma. I'm like, ah, oh, I need to grab that. And my boyfriend's like, can? And I'm like, yes, can. That's the <laughs> word. And I feel like that's been happening when I'm writing. Like, it feels like I'm constantly reaching for things that just are out of reach now. Like, I don't, I know that there is a word for this, but I don't know what it is. It's somewhere in my brain, but I can't find it. And it was really freaking me out. I was like, I don't normally have to use the, the, the thesaurus so much, um, but it saved me during girly drinks because I just couldn't think of anything. I was like, how do I, how do I make word good? How does this happen? <laughs> I couldn't remember. I was like, I know I've done this before. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I have a um, list of questions for you from my wife. I'll just read them really quickly. Why are your tattoos so cool? How do you keep your hair so bright? And will you be my friend? Uh, first question. Uh, the reason why my tattoos are so cool is because I do the funny thing is, this actually ties back around to my work is that I love to research. And I always really do great people are people always ask me, they're like, how do I find it? How do I find a tattoo artist? How do I start with a tattoo? And like research and research artists, you can't it's not like going to trying to think of like a cashier, you know, it's not just someone who they're not just putting a tattoo on you. It really is an art form. And you have to find someone who, um, does the style that you like at a shop that you think is great. So I do a lot of research, which is why my tattoos are great. Uh, two, my hair stays really bright. Um, well, one, this I, I just got my hair done in June for the first time since the pandemic started. Um, and it felt like, I, I called it my pandemic meter when you could see, it was, I had more roots than I had since college. And that was like, our, cause I had gotten my hair dyed right before the pandemic started. And as my, my brown hair came further and further out, it was like our little, uh, pandemic measure of how long we've been in this. Um, but I put manic panic in it a little bit to save it. Uh, now I have like normal, uh, dye from the, from my lovely, uh, uh, hairstylist, Georgia, uh, in Palm Springs. Uh, but I don't wash my hair that much. That's the secret. You just don't wash. I only wash my hair uh, like once or twice a week. Uh, and will you be my friend? Of course. I don't try to remember if I've ever met your wife. I don't think I have. I don't think you have. No. She's only been to one convention with me and it was, it was Gen Con like six years ago. That's a weird one to start with. It was, but we had a, it, she's very uncomfortable around large crowds. And, uh, yeah. and we had a friend's, a friend's mom lived nearby in Indianapolis. And so she was comfortable going and staying at that house to be able to have a place to like recharge from the big crowds. Yeah. You need it. Well, it seems like she's already got the pan, the, the, the con, uh, uh, things you need to do down, you know, she's, uh, she's got this, the, the, the routine, you know, you go and see everyone and then you have to recharge for a little while and then you come back. Yeah. Someday, someday she'll, uh, someday I'll go to cons again. It is thinking about being at a convention is wicked weird. Yeah. No, I, I was planning on doing, um, Salt Lake fan X. Cause it's like, it's huge. It's like 150,000 people and it's only about 45 minutes from me. And, uh, and I was planning on doing it. And then about a month ago, I just finally kind of said, you know what? I am not comfortable being in a room with that many people right now. Yeah. So I'm just going to pull out. It's just, well, also just from a social standpoint, I don't know how to be around that many strangers. Like, (laughs) I don't remember what it's like to have to interact with a bunch of people. I don't know all the time. I just don't like for, you know, the past 
you know, year and a half, almost two years we've been doing this. Like I mostly talk to my cats and my boyfriend. Like we, the three, <laughs> four of us have been our little pandemic unit. And um, the more that it will like midsummer, like all basically all of June, we were like, oh, we can go to restaurants again. Oh, maybe we can like start visiting some friends. And I just forgot how to talk to people. I'm just like, uh, how, how you, you know, I like, I don't know. I, I don't in, in so much of, of interacting with readers and fans is like, you know, being as, as extroverted and outgoing and um, charming as you possibly can and making somebody else feel comfortable because, you know, even though author as authors, we're very nervous around fans and authors are like spiders. We're more afraid of you than you are, than, than uh, you are of us. But I know that people get really nervous when they go to, um, go to signing. So I try to be as like warm and love and like nice as I possibly can. Um, and I, I can't even fathom having to sign that up right now. I don't remember that skill has atrophied. I would just be like, hi, what are you doing? Well, well, and it's weird because when you're in kind of a, 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 I think like a, I don't think it would be ungenerous to say that when you work kind of in the, the genre, uh, the genre fictions that you get a lot more awkward people than normal. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You do. And, and you have to kind of learn how to read those signals and be really kind about it and really like yes. deal with that in a really nice way. Uh, you know, like, cause I'm, I'm a super awkward person at times. And when I kind of put on my public face, I have to just be like, okay, I, I need to be the, like the, the really solid person. I can't yes. be awkward. I can't be weird. I've got to just be really cool and it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember how to do that. I'm the same way. <laughs> like I'm the, I'm the opposite of a lot of awkward people where I talk too much instead of being like really quiet. I just like, I just spew whatever is like, it's just total stream of consciousness. And um, when you are on the other side of that table, you have to be, you know, people are really excited to meet you. And there it's such an honor that they like your work and they want you to sign their book and, and meet you. And you can't just be like a weirdo. You have to be cool. <laughs> and I don't remember how to do that. Um, we tentatively have some in-person events scheduled for girly drinks, um, which is my next book, which is out next month. Um, and I have no idea if they're going to happen or not, um, but I'm already getting nervous. I'm like, who am I going to like, should I practice to having conversations with people? Like <laughs> find random people on the street, like talk to my neighbor. Like, I don't, it's just, there's so many weird skills and social skills that we've forgotten. And especially like very specific author skills that we've all cultivated that I've completely lost. And I have to build back up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so tell me about girly drinks. Cause I was reading about this and it sounds really cool. So Girly Drinks is a world history of women drinking, serving, and making alcohol from the dawn of time until now. And I am very excited about it. I'm a huge cocktail nerd. Um, I'm very nervous about it because it's my first genre departure. Um, everything I've ever done up until this point, whether it's a movie or a book, has been genre adjacent in some way. And this is about halfway through Girly Drinks, I realized I was like, oh my God, I'm writing a book for normal people. What do I do? <laughs> uh, and that's another reason why I'm nervous for, for doing events and talking to, to readers. Cause it's just, it's a straight up micro micro history, history, history book about women. And it's, it's good for people who are into cocktails, wine, people, foodies, people who love any kind of like forgotten women's history, but it is, uh, it's a new thing for me. 
Uh, I wrote it because I just really wanted to read it, same as my other book. Um, and it's a totally different, um, totally different world for me. I mean, my first book, Lady from the Black Lagoon, uh, was a history biography, um, but it was all about monsters and horror. Like that's what I've been doing for years and years and years. And this is like, like, oh, this is not weirdo people that I'm writing this book for. <laughs> this is like no people who like who who have who never have watched Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, but I'm excited for it. It's a uh, I, I want to see you know what it's going to be like being in a different area of um of the literary world. Um, I know that you probably share this. Like sometimes you're like, man, I'm really burnt out on the genre world, you know, and like the genre community, <laughs> like, you know, especially after last year, there's just, um, it, and, I, and the funny, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, Oh, I don't want to, uh, my old other community that I was in is stressful and, and clicky and, and, uh, weird. I'll go into this other community. Surely there won't be weird, stressful clicks in that one. Um, but you know, we'll see. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Still nervous. I think we're all nervous when a book comes out, you know, doesn't matter. If yeah, it's, definitely. You know, I know you have a very established brand and, you know, your your readers know what they're getting when they're getting a Brian McClellan book. Um, and I, I'm a little worried about like stepping outside of that zone for me, but we'll see. See, I weirdly, because when I was prepping for this podcast, I, I didn't think you were stepping out of your brand because I, you know, I was looking at it and I was like, wow, Mallory's like really building a career kind of with really interesting historical stuff. Like, I think that's... Oh, that is so nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> no, I think it's super cool. Uh, and I I was, I, I thought that was fun. And I, I was curious whether that's on purpose or whether it was just kind of accidental because you were interested in these things and you started writing books. Yeah, it's sort of accidental. Um, really, it, it all comes down to the fact that I am a huge nerd about things. I don't just, I have a friend who's like, Mallory, you don't just like anything. You're either don't care about something or you're obsessed with it. You know, that's the, that's how nerds are. That's what we do. And whenever I get really into anything, the first thing I want to do is read a book about it. I'm very Hermione Granger in that way. And um, I wrote Lady from the Black Lagoon because I idolized this woman, Millicent Patrick, who I knew designed the creature from the Black Lagoon, but nobody knew anything about her. No one even knew if she was still alive. And I was like, I want to know. So I, you know, wrote this book and found out what happened to her and wrote this biography of her. And while I was still working on Lady from the Black Lagoon, um, I moved out to Los Angeles from Brooklyn, where I was living. And my best friend, Lauren Panapinto, the uh, creative director over at Orbit, someone that you know and has designed some really cool covers for your books. She designed six covers for me. <laughs> She's fantastic. Um, but she is a huge cocktail nerd and got me into cocktails. Um, and as a housewarming present in my new place in Los Angeles, uh, she got me uh, my own home cocktail set and she got um, me some cocktail recipe books. So I got really, really nerdy about it. I hate cooking, but I love cocktails. I don't know why that is. Um, it's, I don't know. Co making cocktails is less stressful for me. I got really, really into it. And um, so, of course, I was like, OK, now I'm really into cocktails. I need to learn about them. So I started buying all these cocktail history books and I was just like, what, where's the woman? Where's the other history? Like it was only only white guys. And um, I was like, well, but what about everybody else? Like, And I, I remember reading this one book um, and it had one line in it. And it said, during Prohibition was the first time that women were allowed into bar spaces because all sorts of social, social rules were upended during Prohibition and in speakeasies. And I was like, stop, hold the phone. 
I want to know more about that. But that was it. It was just like one line in this one book. And I was complaining to Lauren about it. I was like, oh my God, there's no women's history in any of these books. And she was like, well, you know what your next book is going to be? And I was like, oh, dang. Okay. I guess I have to write it. And that's how Girly Drinks happened. And um, uh, there's two other books that I have uh, sort of in the pipeline that are very similar because I just... I, I want to know. I want to satisfy my own curiosity, and it drives me nuts when I uh, when I when I can't find those things. Um, the whole time I was working on girly drinks, I kept saying, "Oh my gosh, why is any, why isn't anybody written about this? This is nuts!" And I'm just like looking looking for all these research books. And Lauren kept saying, "Mallory, the book you're looking for is the book you're writing. Like you just have to keep going." Um, and uh, I think my my what you call is cool historical, which thank you. I'm going to use that on, I'm going to put that on my, my business cards um, <laughs> is really just me being a nerd and a feminist and really wanting to know the women's history of the things that um, uh, the things that I'm interested in. And I'm lucky enough, I guess, in that way that no one has, no one has written any of these books so far. I mean, we are, it is 2021 and no one has written a history of the, his, the history of women in, in alcohol. That is bonkers. Um, so luckily this one tiny insignificant perk of, uh, of the way the world is, is that I get to be the one to write these stories. I, I think that's super cool. And I, I'm like, I'm hoping that you keep kind of working along that, you know, I guess, you know, like mini historical genre of these kind of quite cool feminist sort of, like you said, micro histories. I really like that term actually. Cause, oh, I love that term. It feels so fancy. Right. Like I, I read, I've got something on my bookshelf that, um, man, where is it? I don't see it right now, but it, it was a collection of things that changed the world. And, and there was like five chapters on air conditioning. And you think on the surface, you're like, okay, air conditioning, that's a stupid topic. But if somebody does their research and has the chops, they can make anything interesting. I love reading about that kind of stuff. Oh, I absolutely love it. And it's funny because I felt the same way about the term microhistory because it was, I was, I only first heard it a few years ago and I was like, it was a, like a light bulb moment. I was like, oh, that's what I like. I, I love like, oh, the history of a fork, please give me that. I love a deep dive into something that you, especially things that we use every day or uh, think about every day or just are in our homes that we would never realize have this like rich history that have really changed, um, change the world, change the way we do something. It's so, so fascinating to me. And I love reading it. I was just uh, reading a micro history called quackery, which is the history of like the weird ways that people like, basically it's a history of snake oil. And it's just like, it's so interesting to me. And it's, uh, I'm very happy that I, and I know that you are the same way that you were able to turn the things that you're nerdy about into your career. Yeah. And that's fun. And I think that that, I think for a lot of uh, people that want to create for a living, like that's kind of what you got to do. Yes. You know, you, you've got to be, you've got to, you've got to have that excitement and that interest in what you're doing. You know, um, I haven't had like a, a strict self pubber yet on the podcast, but one of the things I'm fascinated by with the self publishing industry is how, how many marketing gurus end up like just kind of, you know, penning out a book and then using all of their marketing powers to make this book a best bestseller, even, and they're not really passionate about it. They're not really writers. They're marketing people. And I and I and I'm not saying that's the exclusion of all you know all self publishers are like that or anything like that. But but I find that kind of a fascinating modern sort of 
weirdness in our industry. Yeah, because I, I really think that the only way, um, and Cameron Hurley talks about this very eloquently about how um, writing is a marathon, not a sprint. And to have that, st- the only thing that can really give you that stamina is the love of it. And even the um, self-published authors or hybrid authors that you and I both know are people who just fucking love what they do, you know, and people, um, it's really the only thing that can carry you through. Because when you're working on a book, um, you know, readers just see like that tip of the iceberg, you know, and they don't realize, um, for Lady from the Black Lagoon, my first book, I wrote it before Me Too happened and before Shape of Water came out. I I think I wrote it before Shape of Water. I started working on it before Shape of Water was even a twinkle in Guillermo del Toro's eye. Um, and I just, it just so happened that the book came out at the right time, right after Shape of Water and won all these, won all these Oscars and like right in the middle of all the, uh, Me Too stuff that was happening. And so many people were like, wow, what a great idea to have done this. I was like, I started working on this like years ago. (laughs) You just, the only thing you can't count on any of that stuff. You can't count on timing. You can't, you just can't count on these things. And you know, and all the long nights of of writing and all the work that goes into it. The only thing that can keep you going is the love of what you, what, what you have. You have to be your own, uh, your own audience. You know, you have to think what you're doing is cool. You ever, people are always like, oh, well, I'm really worried about like what, trying to figure out what genre I am and, you know, trying to figure out uh, what sells best. And there's only one person in the world who could do that. And that's John Scalzi. <laughs> he did it one time and that's it. Lightning struck once. Um, for the rest of us, you really just have to absolutely love what you're working on. Especially too, because if you want it to be a long-term career, you're going to be interacting with readers and you're going to be forming a brand and forming an audience and you're going to be so enmeshed in this world. I mean, if I I spent basically like every day for the past, um, for like three years thinking about Creature from the Black Lagoon for for that book, if I didn't absolutely fucking love Creature from the Black Lagoon, I would have gone mad. Like that's what you have to do. Yeah. And, and it's readers can tell if you are bored, Yeah, if you are not interested and that goes, I, I would assume that that goes for nonfiction just as well as it goes for fiction. Oh, absolutely. Because, because they've got a, they've got to feel that, that, uh, passion on the page. They've got to feel your interest. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's super important for just creating anything. Oh yeah. I want, I always want my readers to feel like it's like me and them sitting down and I'm telling them a cool story. Like that's, that's my goal. Um, and that's, uh, that's often how I figure out what to, cause basically, I mean, all nonfiction is fiction. You know, you're choosing, there's no truth in the world. You know, you're always choosing what to leave in and what to leave out and what angle you're writing from. Um, so when I'm, I'm deciding like, what should I leave out or what, how should I approach something? It's always like, what do I think? What to me personally is the most interesting. It's like trying to tell a story to somebody at a party. You have to keep them tell, like telling a story to somebody at a party about somebody they don't know. You have to give them enough information that they know what's going on and tell it in a compelling enough way that they're going to stay interested, you know? And it's, um, if you're like you said, if they if you're bored, it's like that thing where uh, if you're hot, they're hot. You know, <laughs> roll down your windows or something, whatever it is. Like dogs and in, in cars. Like if uh, if you're bored, they're bored. Yeah, for sure. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of the things I, I kind of like asking people about is uh, what what does your family or uh, m- maybe more specifically your parents, what, what do they feel about kind of what you do for a living? I wouldn't know. <laughs> I have no relationship to my biological family. <laughs> really? So I did not know that. Yeah. I um, It's something I t- actually talk about a little bit in Lady from the Black Lagoon, which is really funny because I get very weird emails about it. Um, but I'm estranged from my entire family and I have been for years and years. Um, and I have no idea what they, uh, what they think about it. I know what my boyfriend's parents think, and I know what my best friend's parents think, which is very funny because they're both named Barbara and Joe. <laughs> That's quite the coincidence. <laughs> it's very, very funny. Um, yeah, but it's, it's interesting because I get kind of like a pseudo parent experience through them. Like mm-hmm. Lauren's mom calls me up when anything exciting happens and tells me how proud she is of me. And they all read my books, which is great because then I get to have that like embarrassing, oh my God, my parents are reading my books feeling, but twice because it's my boyfriend's parents and my, my best friend's parents. Um, and I think what's funny is that I thought I was m- much more nervous than I think that I needed to be because uh, my writing style is very casual. I swear a lot. Um, you know, I, I talk very frankly, especially my first book about sexual assault and, um, misogyny and all, and all these things. And I was so mortified to have like adults in my life, which is such a weird feeling because we are adults, but as long as there are people that are old, like parent parental figures around us, we like, whenever I think of adults, I think of them, uh, not myself, which <laughs> makes no sense. Um, that I was very, uh, very concerned that they, I don't know, it's that, it's that just same weird feeling that, 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 that exact feeling of like being nervous about swearing in front of someone's parents. Um, but I didn't need to feel like that. And um, again, maybe it's because I'm not their actual children and I don't have to worry as much. Um, but I was very concerned, especially when my boyfriend's parents read Lady from the Black Lagoon. We had only been dating for a few months at that point. And I was like, Oh God, they're going to hear me swear. make dick jokes. Like I make several fish dick jokes in that book. And I was like, Oh God, they're going to murder me. They're going to, they're going to forbid me from dating their son. What am I going to do? But it was totally fine. It was absolutely fine. Um, They love it. They have it. They have it on their mantelpiece, which is so adorable. It's like all my boyfriend's like, trades of his comics and (laughs) lady from the black lagoon it's a it's really cute um yeah i think people are the people that we worry about being nervous about being nervous about things or not liking things um are always the ones we don't have to worry about and it's just like random people on the internet that are actually 
much like the awful ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, random people on the internet are the worst. <laughs> it's true. I, I get a lot of weird fan mail, um, especially with uh, specifically for that book. I get a lot of weird fan mail. Um, but I stop. Uh, I, I had that feeling when I was writing it where I was like, should I not be swearing and making fish dick jokes? And I said, no, this is just how this is how I talk. This is, And if I want this book to feel like I'm telling a story to some like telling a story that I think is cool to somebody, I have to write it like this or it's just going to feel stiff and weird. Um, I even tried uh, in my first draft of girly drinks. I had to I tried to pull it back a little bit. And my best friend, who's my first reader, she immediately was like, there's not enough Mallory in this book. This is not going to be good if you don't go ham and 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 make and make, and make jokes and swear and do all the things that um that you really want to do you can't hold back and i was like all right here we go time to drop all the f-bombs um and it just things come out better that way you know what i mean you can't think about that stuff too much when you're working yeah and i think it creates a more authentic especially for something like what you're doing it creates a more authentic kind of authorial voice you know i think so i i, I kind of very purposefully cultivate a pg-13 public image even though my like personal life is very sweary. Um, sorry, mom, if you're listening. I was going to say, do your, does your, does your family read your books? Uh, they do, but my books, uh, my, my urban fantasy series. No, I know you don't have fish stick jokes and, uh, and swears in them as much as. <laughs> my urban fantasy sw- series has kind of just open swearing that I just didn't try to restrict at all. But my, my epic fantasy, I try to keep about PG 13. Yeah. But I do, I, I, it's weird how the more I write, I feel like more of my dark and weird sense of humor kind of comes it's out. It's creeping out, Brian. It's coming yeah. out. <laughs> and, and I do like, I, I sometimes think about, okay, well, is this something that my mom is going to read? And then, uh, and then she's going to call me up and kind of give me a lecture on it. And I, I guess I, uh, the, the older I get, the less I care, even though I love my mom and I value her opinion, I still just kind of have to do me kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a weird place to be. Cause like, you know, you were talking earlier about like uh, authorial branding and things. And it's, it's weird how I, I kind of, I have a bit of a mercenary feeling in terms of those are all good things to be aware of. But I think that at the base that you are right, that you kind of have to be yourself and, and have your own passions. Um, and that, that all of those other things, like the buzzwords, they all, they, they need to be something that you know about. Oh, for sure. And that you, that you can steer, but you don't necessarily want to drive your boat through them. Does that make any sense? No, I, t- I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, it's, I, I always try to tell people, um, you know, cause I, I, sometimes I teach classes on this stuff and I'm like, it's like being yourself, but curated. And that's both for your reader's benefit and for your own benefit. I think it's really important to keep some parts of your life to yourself and to have, like to have interests that have nothing to do with the things that, you know, your work or your writing about. Um, and just to keep some of your private life private, you know, as especially in the pandemic now where, you know, we're all the only place we can be is online. Um, and authors are trying harder than ever to sell their books and figure out ways and like, making TikToks and whatever the fuck to like, you know, sell books and stuff. You really, sometimes you're, you know, your quote unquote author brand. I know we all hate that word, but that's what it is. It's for your own benefit. You know, it helps keep you a little bit protected. Um, And also for people who are just for authors who are just starting out and like, okay, how do I have an author Twitter? How, How do I have an author Instagram? It can really help you figure out, okay, well, what, 
should I, should I just be posting what I have for breakfast? Or like, what should I be posting about here? Is thinking about the kind of subjects you want to interact with your readers about um, is really, really helpful. And, um, and again, sometimes you just keep things for yourself. Uh, about when I started dating my boyfriend, I, um, I got wicked into hockey. I'm a huge hockey fan now, uh, which you no one would ever guess. I am like the gothiest goth person. And now I'm just like obsessed with hockey. And sometimes I'll tweet about it, but more often I'm like, oh, it's so nice to have like this thing that has nothing to do with horror or writing or movies or anything else that I do that I am like purely a fan of that I don't like talk about that much online. It's like, it's nice to have that. Right, because when you have like a... I feel like every time I post about something that isn't that isn't what I do for a living, that people seem to automatically assume I'm a professional. When I when I post about cooking or gardening or anything like that, they automatically assume that I'm a very studied and knowledgeable mm-hmm. person in that field. And I'm super not. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, I I like to cook, but I don't consider myself a foodie. Yeah. You know, I, I love to eat, but I'm not like, <laughs> I don't have like a super refined palate or anything. Uh, you know, like I just, I, it's weird how you, when you, when you get like a blue check mark on Twitter, people suddenly start thinking, oh, they know their stuff. Uh, professional barbecue Brian is smoking meats. I must take notes on his meat smoking. Yeah. Right. I, exactly. It's like, I totally get it. No, no. I'm just another schlub that likes to do some things, you yes. know? Well, I think a lot of it, too, comes from that impulse that a lot of people have that are like, ooh, monetize all things that you love. And yeah. sure, well, it's like there is no secret that it's fucking awesome that we get to be authors for a living like that is cool as hell. Um, but on the other hand, like it's good to just have things that are hobbies and can I know it's a weird word for us all relax us. You know, it's not everything has to be something that is super, super monetized and part of your work. Um, I even had that when I started getting into hockey, I was like, Ooh, should I start writing about hockey? And I was like, no, I don't want to write about hockey. I just want to watch it. I want to yell at my screen. Like that's all I want to do. Um, and I think knowing where you want to meet your audience is really, really, is is a nice, it's a big part of that. And it's a, it's just a nice thing to know about. Right. And, and one of those weird things about social media is how, like, and I, I think I get stuck in this sometimes where there's part of my brain that when I post on Twitter, when I post like a, like a chicken that I just smoked and that I'm about to eat for dinner, there's part of my brain that thinks that I'm showing that to a handful of my friends like the, the like my author friends yeah. that I know on Twitter, even though I'm very knowledgeable, the fact that it's, you know, however many people follow me that are mostly strangers yep. that I'm posting this, but there's that, there's that weird part of your brain. And I think, I think social media kind of tries to take advantage of that. Oh, it absolutely does. And it's, it's weird though. Cause you just, you're like, Oh, I, I posted this thing 25 minutes ago to, to brag to my buddies. And now there's these people I don't know responding. Yes. And sometimes... And saying, oh, you shouldn't smoke chicken. Chicken sucks. Why would you eat chicken? Yeah. You're a murderer. Like, it's weird. It, it is. It's super weird. And I think you're totally right that social media tries to, like, cultivate that artificial, like, buddy-buddy environment that isn't real. Um, although I do really like the new feature that's, like, you can respond who replies to things. I think that's really helpful. And I really think that more authors should take advantage of that. 
especially when they're posting more personal things or like they just don't want a random man who lives in Germany to be like, you sucks, go kill yourself. Um, it's that's, that's really, really helpful. Um, but it is weird. And I, I think, and I don't know, I don't know about you, but I know that a bunch of friends of mine and like friend groups are like, we've tried to experiment with like discord or like having zoom parties. And like, that it's like, it comes back to what we were talking about before is like nothing really ever uh, can replace the feeling of like going to a convention or something and like seeing all your friends, but we keep trying we're like, Oh, I'm going to post this cool thing I made and tag all my, all my friends and we're going to talk about it. But then it just, it doesn't feel the same because it's not. No, it's, it's totally true, but it, it's a, it's a weird, like, it's like a, it, it's like empty calories, you know, but for socializing. Yes. <laughs> It's like if we were having it's Brian, it's like if you and I were having a conversation at a con bar, but instead of that one random guy that's trying to listen in, there's 50,000 of them and they're all watching us and you're like, oh, this is super weird. But also there's something very not great about making all of your social interactions with your friends performative. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. Yeah, we could talk for hours about that. Because <laughs> there's, but there's all this pressure. Like, oh, I just want to tell my friend their tattoo looks cool, but like, I better say it in a cool and funny way because a million people are gonna see it and respond to it. It's, um, you know, what's that law that, like, you know, just the the uh, nature of something being observed changes the thing that's being observed. Uh, I can never remember the name of that law because you know I pan- We all have a pandemic brain, and I can't remember the name for tuna. Um, it's just such a strange feeling of like, I really think that's a lot of, unless you're like having a conversation in your DMS or something, having the only interaction we get be observed by the internet at large is, um, is not great. Yeah. I've been trying to make a point for a couple of years now that if like, I see something on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, that is like a close friend of mine has like a new book out or a birthday or something like that. If I have their number, I will try to text them congratulations or happy birthday. I do the same thing. Rather than say it online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, I, I feel like it, I don't know, it, it makes, it's a dumb little thing, but it feels like it takes a little of the power back to myself. Yeah. And makes things a little more personal, you know? Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I literally do the exact same thing. Mostly because I just, um, I don't want... And it's it, it really we're, we're salmon swimming upstream here because especially as, as authors, so much of our prof- authors in the pandemic, most, if not all of our professional socializing is on Twitter. Like it just that's how it is. But I, I, I try to swim. I, I try to, to swim upstream. I try to resist it because there, there's something like I said, something uh corruptive maybe about it being uh performative and i mean it can go great look at our chuck wendig and sam sykes got a fucking movie deal out of their their twitter interactions it's it can be really good and it can attract a lot of readers i mean there's a lot of good things about it um but at the same time it can't be that can't be everything you know it can't be all all of your all of your social interactions it just uh it's just weird. Yeah. There's got to be a limit to it. And there's got to be, you've got to reserve something for yourself just as a person. Yeah. Cause it just, you know, you're having your whole private life in front of the millions of, of, of people on the internet. It's just, uh, it freaks me out a little bit. And, you know, maybe that's contributing to us all being extra socially awkward now that we're well, very, the very brief window we had, we were, where we were starting to come out of uh, isolation. 
I, I talked to so many people where, where we were all like, how do we do this again? It's like, oh, maybe because we're all used to just talking to each other on Twitter. Um, we forgot how to be in person again. Yeah, it's it, it's very weird. And it's it's such a hard thing for authors. Um, did you read Case and Calendar's uh, really great essay about that they wrote about how um, publishers want you to think that you need to be on social media, but you don't actually need to be i didn't know you should read it because it really fucked me up i should find that about well they they listed all of these authors that like are bazillionaire bestsellers that have never been on social media and they were like and there's a grain of truth to it they were you know a grain of truth and it's true they're like if your publisher really wants your book to be huge and it's a good book maybe sometimes even if it's not a good book it's gonna go you know you don't need to be on twitter as much as we all feel that we do you know, there's definitely, um, I, I took a, I took a hiatus for a few months this year. I don't even remember when it was maybe January, who knows, like passage of time makes no sense anymore. Um, <laughs> right. Doesn't exist. I know it really doesn't. Um, but as we were all, you know, as the, uh, the mach- promotion mach- machine started to gear up for girly drinks, I was like, I felt and even today, every single day up until it comes out. And even after I feel this compulsion to get online, to post things, to like being, a- have a part of me available at all times to the internet at large, just because I have this book coming out. And um, I, I, I know that we shouldn't feel like that. We don't have to feel like that, but we do. I was um, talking to, my author friend Sarah Gailey and they were like authors cling to social media because it's the only part of the publishing process that they can control and I was like oh you're right oh that feels bad to know but it's true we have like readers don't realize how little control we have over basically everything you know well and I I think that that comes kind of that's part of the kind of fetishization of self-publishing is that it's like crack when you realize that you get to make all of your own decisions. Cause I've done a little bit of self-publishing and, and it's a pain in some ways, but also being able to make those decisions yourself feels amazing. Intoxicating. I'm sure, I'm sure it is like being a kid who gets to stay home alone for the first time ever. And you're just like, I can do anything I want. I can't. Yeah. I can't imagine. Um, I mean, I know it a little bit cause uh, reading glasses the podcast that i do with my friend Bria grant and we're we control everything but it's it's a little bit different um with a book i think um i can't imagine just being in charge of all that stuff um but that's and that's why i think so many of us like really like agonize over our brands and what our social media looks like and all these things because it's like that one little part of the process that we can control. Um, but in this essay case and calendar like breaks down they're like okay let's say that this tweet about my with a pre-order link of my book does really well a thousand people like it 600 people retweet it that's that's you know i work so hard and i pour all so much time and energy into into these posts that i'm doing every day and i'll maybe me if i'm lucky maybe 20 to 100 copies get pre-ordered like yeah that's nothing compared to what uh you know your publisher can do uh it's so it's it's very, I was reading that. And I was like, Oh man, you know, that scares the shit out of me. Cause it's true. It really, really is true. And I mean, I know that it helps and I know that there's, I mean, we both know lots of authors that have done really well on social media and um, been able to get book deals or, or uh, sell a lot of copies of their books, but it's a, uh, so it's like, it's just enough to keep you there and hoping 
you know, my, my goal, I, I, honestly, a lot of people who, who aren't authors are always surprised when I say this, but I'm like, oh, if I became, if I started, if my books regularly always hit the New York Times bestseller list, I would not be on social media. I would not. I would delete my Twitter. Yeah. If, if, you, can, if you can feel like you can get out of there without consequence, I, I you know, I'm not 100% sure if I would, but I'd be so tempted. I, I feel like I would be one kind of bad day away from just saying, screw this, I am out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, cause it's so, it's such a double edged sword because it's access. It's access to you. Like, I think of all the time about old, older authors that I love, like Shirley Jackson, who's the queen of my world, and I'm completely obsessed with her. But the thought that Shirley Jackson, all her fan correspondence came via letter is mind boggling to me. Imagine be living in, you know, during that time and being able to just like tweet at Shirley Jackson. That is so strange to wrap your brain around, but that's what people can do now. And on one hand, I get the most amazing shit and the most amazing emails and, and things from, from people. But I also get people to like, like I said before, telling me to kill myself. Um, and, uh, I don't know if it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's that double-edged sword of like you get all the good things, but you also get the bad things. You and you really get them, and uh, you know it just takes up a lot of. Sometimes I'm on Twitter and I'm like, I could be doing literal. I could be smelling the air. I could be petting my cat. You know, I could <laughs> be doing so many other things. Um, but at the same time, it's how I keep up with my friends and I talk about my friends' books. Like I like. I really like being able to know, you know, hey, Brian smoked a chicken. I hope he's having a lovely evening. <laughs> like, hey, Chuck Wendig is having a lovely cocktail. What a great thing. You know, it's nice to know those things. It's nice to get updates on your, especially now when we can't see each other. It's so nice to get updates on like whatever, you know, the nice things that are happening in people's lives and the and being able to be like, oh, my friend's putting a book out. You should buy it. Um it's such a weird thing. And I don't know if there's a solution to it. I don't know if there's a way to create a social media uh, that could be used by creative people, uh, both for personal things and for work that doesn't have all those downsides. Well, and it's that tough part of the mixing of the public and the private, because like when we go to a convention, we can like do our song and dance all day long, but we can also go back to the bar afterwards and probably not be bothered and go and hang out with our buddies for a few hours or go to one of our rooms or something. And that is a, you know, even though we're on a working vacation at a convention, we're able to separate the work from the vacation just because, you know, cause that's kind of the nature of things. But like on Twitter, you don't get to separate the work from the, the socializing, you know? Oh yeah. I think, I think it was Catherine Valente who, who tweeted last year during the whole shakedown when like, just there was a lot of bad stuff happening in the horror community and in the sci-fi fantasy community. She was like, tw Twitter writers have no central HR department and they are trying to use Twitter for that. And that was, it really blew me away. She's a hundred percent right. And it's, we, we work in such a weird industry where we, we have no central meeting place. We have no central way of meeting each other, of interacting with each other. Really all we have is Twitter. And that is, I, I really don't think is a great thing. Uh, but I don't know what else, what else can we do? You know? Right. And it's, you know, and it's, and it's weird because you don't, you don't get to curate that at all. You know, like 
you can anybody can follow you and yeah you can mute and you can you know block people and stuff like that but it's not the same as being able to say oh i i am going to a party with these people oh that person i i'm not a fan of that person i will avoid that person you know that kind of thing i i don't know i i feel like i feel like every time i get up and i look at twitter and it's everyone screaming about everything at all times like that's every single time I'm like, well, I'm unfollowing those three people. Yeah. It's a, it's a feel bad machine. It's a machine that creates the feeling of feeling bad. Um, but again, I don't know. It's so frustrating to me because I don't know any other options like this Instagram a little bit is nice. Cause it's like, Oh, I can just curate it to like pictures of my friends, pets and like the quiches they're eating. But at the same time, it's not a chronological timeline. You can't share links on it. It really is not a great Instagram is a place for artists and visual artists and not for authors. Uh, really for authors, all we have are podcasts and Twitter. Um, and it's, it frustrates me because I wish there was something better because the good things about it, I love, I love uh, being able to instantly tell tell readers, hey, here's the th- this thing that I'm doing. I love being able. To- One of my favorite things in the world is when someone's like, hey, I read I read your book. It really meant a lot to me. Like that makes my whole fucking day. I love being able to keep uh, keep tabs on what my friends are doing and and help pr- them promote their own work. But like the dark side of it makes it so stressful especially because now everything is geared towards an outrage you know outrage machine uh everything's clickbait everything is geared towards engagement and not necessarily anything good um just feel like we're trapped we're trapped in twitter brian what do we do (laughs) right (laughs) hey you know what but at least i get little things at least i get like like the reminder that what we do in the shadows is back that is nice. It is nice to like, oh, I know when movies are coming out. I've got a new TV show to watch tomorrow. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's just, it feels like such a weird, broken system, but there's so there's enough benefit from it that we get that we just keep coming back. And that happened when I went on, I went on, I think it was like a month or two month Twitter hiatus at the beginning of the year. And on one hand, I was like, wow, I don't feel a constant sense of crushing dread every single moment of my day. But on the other hand, I miss talking to my friends. (laughs) (laughs) I miss interacting with them. Like I'm, you know, I miss all of that. And it's so, it's so weird. I guess I could make a friends only Twitter, but then again, but also I couldn't tell readers like, Hey, this thing is happening. Right. Right. And if you're going to make a friends only Twitter, then just start a Slack group, you know, like, but then you have to curate it and you have to decide who to invite. And, and it's, it's like kind of tough to like, I don't know, it's tough to create those online spaces that you can feel comfortable in. It really is. And it's funny because I've been in a few different author Slacks and I can never stay there long because inevitably, um, you know, somebody gets invited that somebody doesn't else, someone else doesn't like. And then those two people can't feel comfortable because there's someone in there that they don't like. And it's just too hard. Slack is trying to have that bar con feel, but without the ability to like, oh, I can just walk away if I don't want to have this conversation with somebody like it. Uh, I think Slack's only work for a very, very small group of people or uh, my podcast reading glasses. We actually have a Slack for our paying members and it is my favorite place on the internet. It is awesome. Um, But it's not like intimate friends. It's like people who want to talk about the books that they read. Um, 
So my my thing is that I wish that Twitter would let you do friends only or mutuals only tweets. And I think that would solve some of it that that way you could be like, oh, all my all my book tweets are public, but I'll keep my chicken smoking tweets <laughs> for my mutuals only. And like the reply thing is kind of like that. But I there's some things like I just don't only want my friends to see like I don't want the whole world to be able to read it, you know. So um, I uh, I wanted to ask you about something I want because we've been going about social media a lot. I know we've a lot of pandemic feelings. <laughs> It is. It's pandemic feelings. Like, like, man, it's it's just something that's on our minds constantly because of what we do. But I wanted to ask. I wanted to geek out about something. I'm on board. What did? Because I know this is your aesthetic. Uh, the Green Knight. Your thoughts? I loved it. I loved it so much. Uh, I knew I was gonna love it because I, funnily enough, I saw someone tweeting. Uh, this is the kind of medieval knight movie that macho guys hate, and I was like, I'm on board. Um, I absolutely loved it. I love the cast. I love the story of a man trying to fit into this like garbage macho world and like try every time the harder he tries, the more he fails because it's a system that doesn't work for anybody. And I loved it. I, 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 uh, I love all the, pe- the tweets that are like, I love this dumb himbo. This is so wonderful. <laughs> like, and obviously it was super beautiful. Uh, did, what did you think? The cinematography was freaking gorgeous. Loved it. So I, I think Michelle, my wife, liked it more than I did. But I I feel like I was of t- like I went into it kind of knowing ish what to expect. And I feel like I had like a split brain my entire time. Like there was there was a part of me that really wanted like this gorgeous Dev Patel uh character to just like cut his way through everybody like an action film. But then, but I knew that wasn't the film I was watching, but man, like there was so many, like I had so many conflicting feelings, like, like I really wanted him to succeed, but each time he failed, the failure was couched so beautifully in very understandable ways. And I'm like, okay, who's the villain? Is there a villain? Who's the good guy? Is there a good guy? Like, gosh, I had so much going on in my brain the whole time. Oh, uh, I really, I think that feeling is, is created intentionally. Cause I felt the same. I mean, when he, uh, I, I'll, I'll try to keep it as spoiler free as possible for your listeners. But when he, during the initial meeting of the green Knight, the whole time I was like, you, you dummy, like, what are you doing? And it's so frustrating. Um, but it's those poor choices that power the entire movie and that feeling of frustration is uh, is so intentional um, I, uh, on behalf of the director and the writers that I was like, man, damn, you did you done good. This is uh, I'm feeling frustrated. I, I think what I liked so much was that it was it felt very human. Like I spent the entire time in my brain just screaming at the main character who every single person pronounces his name differently. Oh yeah. I, I noticed that G- Garwin or Gowan or however you want to say it. I, my whole time I, I kept screaming in my head, everyone loves you. And if you understood that you would rule the world, mm-hmm. like you would conquer everything, but because you don't understand that you will fail at everything. And it, it felt so human. Oh, it was so cool. Yeah. And I think that's why it was so fun to watch watch a a film like that especially dealing with those kinds of legends uh because we we mythologize those characters so much you know to the point where they're not human anymore 
are. They are, they are legends. You know, they're these magical people who don't sweat or make mistakes and seeing this, this, this guy, this like himbo hunk, like absolutely failing his way upward the whole time. And you know, like you said, people are throwing themselves at him. The, the whole movie, people throw themselves at this guy and he's just, is completely clueless. Um, it was really cool. I had never really, I can't think of a lot of other movies that are specifically in that time, like time period, you know, it's, uh, not real, but in, in that sort of oeuvre that, that feel like that, that feel that, like you said, human is the perfect word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it was weird. Cause the moment, like when we first saw like the, um, cause when I was really little, like one of my first fantasy loves was King Arthur. And so like, so I was excited to see this and when we first see everything, you know, like all the long shots and we get to see the round table, I thought the designs were all very cool. And then I was kind of like, I tripped up a little bit when we first meet Arthur, but like it won me over immediately. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. An older, just super tired Arthur. Oh yeah. He's so done. (laughs) He's just done with everything. Like I kind of loved that. Like I want to see, I want to see like something that is, I don't want a dumb action film, but I want a an action e version of that like of that world, not necessarily the Green Knight, but of the world, the setting that they put it in, mm-hmm. like with all those characters, like oh man, I just like the super mystical Merlin just kind of creeping around in the background. Oh, I love it! Yeah, and then uh, uh, was it supposed to be Morgana Le Fay? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they pl- they pl- I, I, that's the thing is they they basically sort of combined the Green Knight story with Morgana and or Morgan and um, in Mordred. They, yeah. David Lowry kind of mashed them together, and a lot of medievalists are like, "Oh, it's not accurate. It's like it's fake. Yeah. Calm down." <laughs> like her whole thing as like like oh man there was so much going on that was so cool yes and i like i want to see like a, a mini series of all the different arthurian legends played out with the same cast and the same cinematography yes i think i think the thing that is so wonderful about it, it is that it's dark without being gritty and because i me i mean me definitely and let's see if your listeners agree but i'm just like so burnt out on like the gritty dark tellings of things where like everything's so dark you can barely see your see it on your screen and like yeah there's no that's what i loved about this it was so dark but there was so much heart and there was levity and there was color mixed in and all the darkness and um it really it felt so refreshing after so many gritty reboots of classic stories um that I was like, oh, thank God we're getting something that that's like this. That's a little that can show you that you could have that darkness and have these moody, moody light color schemes without being just like everything is brown and dark and everyone's sad. Yeah, I think um, I think my only complaint with the film was that so we watched it on the uh, like on the 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 night before it came out on Amazon uh, it was like A24. Oh, the A24 screening, yeah. Yeah, the A24 screening. So we walked. We that. tried to get into that, and it, they said it was sold out. And we were like, "It's a digital screening, right?" Uh, but so we met, we got tickets for it. We watched it, but they didn't have subtitles, and it drove me nuts the whole time. So funny you say that because I also must watch everything with subtitles. I don't hear super well. Um, so we, we ended up watching it the next night because the 
digital screening was sold out. So we got it. It went up on VOD like the next day. So we watched it the next night and I got to watch it with subtitles. And I really think that helped because I knew what was going on. Uh, I'm going to have to do a rewatch with subtitles because it it really did. Like there was I, I there were just a few moments, especially where it's like something very important is going on and everyone's whispering. Yeah. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I um my boyfriend is like one of those people who he's just like a film purist, you know, all lights must be off. Like he even will blow a candle out, you know, the <laughs> no, like no subtitles, no, everything must be as pristine. Like he went to film school. Like that's his whole deal. Um, but I don't give a shit. I'm like, it could be on a laptop and I need like, <laughs> I don't care, but I really need my subtitles. And that's like our compromise. Um, because like, there's so many things that I might not hear or like characters might be whispering that you like one name or one voice that you could miss. That's like crucial to the plot. And you're like, wait, who did he say? Who did he say it was? And they're like, I don't know. Right. Oh, I've got to know these things, but I, I don't know. I love that kind of stuff. Um, man, did you, I, I want to say it was the same actor who played Arthur. There was a Macbeth that came out seven, eight years ago. Oh, I haven't seen it. And it was, I, it was stupidly good, but it had the same sort of everything. Everybody's kind of whispering, like gorgeous cinematography. Whispering in the dark. And you're like, I have, it's the problem Game of Thrones had or later on in the series. You're like, everyone's, everything's dark and everyone's talking under their breath. And I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> I can't see and I can't hear. Yeah. Yeah. Even as an artistic choice, it, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't add a ton. I don't think. Yeah, I remember Roxanne Gay saying something like, "Damn, do they not do they not have lamps in King's Landing? Like, like what's going on here? Everything's super dark." You would think everybody'd be shouting at each other in this windy castle because nobody could hear anything. Yeah, there's no there's no possible way people could be whispering. There, that is a really good point, and it's yeah, it's it's tough, and I understand that it's for you know atmosphere or whatever the hell, but I'm like, I can't. It, then in the sound design, crank it up, like. I, but I also like I have hearing damage and I like I, I I just watch subtitles for everything. Even I even like put the closed caption and we're, we're watching the Paralympics right now and I keep the closed captions on, even though half the time they're wrong. Just <laughs> just because sometimes it's nice to have something there to like let you know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, man, I have been keeping you uh, a little bit longer than I normally do, but I, I always. Well, you let me rant about Twitter. <laughs> Hey, you know what? It's it's I think every author in the world has they have a rant about social media inside of them. So it's totally fine. When is you well, I should sometime we should swap it around. I Brian, what are you what is your rant about Twitter? Oh my gosh. No, I I'm not I won't start now. Okay. <laughs> but I I will. I totally will. But yeah, no, I um so I like to end these with asking you what the last meal that you had that blew your mind was. What's the last thing that you ate or drank in your case that just you still think about? Well, it's tough now because going to restaurants is few and far between. But I will say, so in, during that brief period of time when we all thought things were going to be getting better, uh, I booked tickets to go to New Orleans to see Lauren, my best friend. because we haven't It's the longest we've ever gone without seeing each other. And we were so excited. We met our friend Jen there. Um, it, it, and then like about as we got there, that's when things started getting worse. And we were like, Oh no, should we have not booked this trip? Like we were very nervous. But on the last night of the trip, there was this Haitian place and I've never had Haitian food before that uh, we really wanted to go to. And we get there and it was, it's like a new restaurant 
And we get there at like five or six. There's nobody in the place, which made us feel a lot better because by then we were like, we need to go home and, and like things are getting really scary. Um, and it was in, I'm talking, and this is in New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities to eat in and drink in. The, the uh, restaurants and bars in New Orleans are so top notch. And it was the best meal we had the entire trip. We ordered um, uh, these plantains, these shrimp fritters. Um, we each got cocktails. I got their take on a Mai Tai. And um, I got this, this is going to sound so silly, but it was this crab mac and cheese. It was blue crab mac and cheese. And Brian, it was the best mac and cheese I've ever had in my life. Like I still, I mean, we went, uh, we went at the end of July. So it was about, you know, a little over a month ago. And I still think about that mac and cheese, like on the daily. It is, it was the best meal that I've had probably all year. I, I mean, if you, if you, if anyone's in New Orleans, one, I hope you're safe. Two, when things get better, go to this place called Fritai, F-R-I-T-A-I. It is my new favorite restaurant in New Orleans. And oh my God, Brian, this crab mac and cheese. It just, uh, heaven that's, divine, that's so super, superb mac and cheese with all these other things. And like the, these spicy sauces. Oh, it was just like, it was, you know, when you like are embarrassed in a restaurant because you're like trying to convey to the waitress, like how good this is. And she's like, okay, cool. I get it. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely been there before. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, uh, awkward. And oh, again, the cocktails were amazing too. I forget what Lauren got, but my, um, my, my Thai riff was out of this world, just out of this fucking world. Oh man. That, that sounds delightful. I, I am very much against seafood, but I do like, there's like little things that will, that'll come across over that. And, and crab and shrimp are two of those things that like, if it's there, I will totally get it and try it. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, that crab mac and cheese sounds real good. And the, I mean, we, it was like $8 and they gave us this like heap of it. I mean, I was, you, you, you know, when that you're at a really nice restaurant or like a, a restaurant that's really good and you're so full, but you're still eating because you're like, I feel, comp- <laughs> I must finish this thing. I mean, I, I did my best. And finally, Lauren was like, Mallory, you need to stop eating that mac and cheese. You're going to die. I was like, but it's so good. And it was our last night. So we didn't want to like bring it back to the hotel. Like you don't want your hotel room smelling like crab. So oh, I had to leave, uh, had to leave some soldiers on the field. But I still think about it, that mac and cheese. <laughs> oh, no, that sounds fantastic. But OK, so Girly Drinks is out October 19th, which will probably be. Uh, either like when this goes out, it'll be either coming out the day of or soon. Uh, so people should definitely find that because that sounds really dang cool. Yeah, I, uh, I I should when I get my author copies, I should send a copy for your wife. Oh, definitely do. I'll totally grab take one of those. I don't I don't know if she gets dirty about that stuff, but uh, neither of us are huge drinkers. But we just got a new liquor cabinet delivered yesterday, and we're like, okay, we're gonna like try to like have some fancier stuff around and try to like not be troglodytes anymore. <laughs> well, I will say it's not just cocktails. There's a ton of beer history, ton of wine history, ton of sake history. Um, and it's very much geared for actually one of the reasons, uh, my, we had, uh, my editor's assistant, Grace, um, read the, read the manuscript. And it was great because my editor is also a huge cocktail nerd, which is part of the reason why he was like, I really want to buy this book. Um, but it was great because she's like, I don't know what any of these, a a lot of terms that 
Peter was like, you don't need to explain this. And Grace read it and uh, Grace Lowry was like, I don't know what this is. You really need to explain what this is. And I was like, see, I, I really wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So if people are listening and they're like, I don't know anything about cocktails, that's fine. The book's made for you. Well, and that's huge. Like, I, I think having something like that be approachable for people that don't necessarily know the vocabulary, but can find things interesting. That's massive. No, I'm very anti snoot. So I really wanted to make sure it was a, a very accessible cocktail book. I'm super looking forward to it. And you know, now that I think about it, that that sounds like a good Christmas present for a couple of my friends. Thank you, Brian. That's very nice. I like it. That was author Mallory O'Mara. Thanks again to Mallory for taking the time to chat. Make sure you pick up her new book, Girly Drinks, from your favorite bookseller. You can find links to her social media and books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcollin.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.